If location is everything, then the city of Rancho Cucamonga is very fortunate indeed. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. I've seen Star Wars 17 times. 17 times. Star Wars? Uh, 22 times. 40 times, and it was great each time. 41 times. About 57 times. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I. I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great! Hello there. Welcome to episode 16 of Star Wars at the Movies. I'm Stephen Danley, and to kick off this fifth season of the podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with a trio of guests that are responsible for one of my absolute favorite Star Wars events that takes place every year. That being Star Wars Day at the Rancho Cucamonga Public Library. This annual event represents an incredible intersection of two things that mean a lot to me. Star Wars and libraries. Libraries, much like movie theaters, are sacred places to me. So much of what's influenced my view of the world or sparked my interest was absorbed in various forms of that space as I grew up, from discovering the 1983 Random House classic entitled The Ewoks Join the Fight in my preschool library, to late night studying for film history exams on the eighth floor of the Davidson at UC Santa Barbara, to completing coursework for my master's in library science in a myriad of branches in the LA area, just because they felt like the right places to be. And I still get a warm feeling whenever I step through the doors of my hometown branch in Goleta, and I just can't wait to introduce my daughter to her local branch when that time comes. Another library she'll hopefully soon become very familiar with is the aforementioned spot situated in the Victoria Gardens Cultural Center, where Star Wars literally takes over Rancho Cucamonga, California for the Saturday of each Memorial Day weekend, and has since 2008. I first became connected to Rancho's Star Wars Day several years back through an invitation from its co-founder and literacy librarian, Alan Kalachi. Our local California Collectors Club has set up a display of vintage Star Wars wares in the lobby to introduce kids, the old toys and books, and to bring back memories of them for their parents, and it's just simply a joy to see young faces and old faces light up at the sight of a Kenner Falcon, or have their minds blown while winding through a Super 8 movie viewer. But if you look just beyond our table, it's just an expansive sea of Star Wars activity. It has the atmosphere of a festival, with stormtroopers and Jedi and Jawas and droids roaming around, or Billy D. Williams reading Where the Wild Things Are to a group of kids. You name it. It's just the best. So this episode has two goals, one being a look back at how this amazing event came to be, and the second is tracing the passion behind it back to seeing Star Wars on the big screen. Because, well, that's where it starts for so many. Joining me to share their stories are Alan Kalachi, who had mentioned, along with his Star Wars Day co-founder and fellow librarian Adam Tuckerman, and the event's longtime master of ceremonies, actor and Docking Bay 94 podcast host Sean Crosby, who you may know as the one and only Obi-Sean. Alan and Sean both saw the original trilogy in Southern California, and I wanted to give a quick profile on some of the more obscure theaters they mentioned. 
Alan's haunts in the Inland Empire included the Montclair Triplex, where Star Wars opened on August 17, 1977 for an 18-week run. Established and operated by SRO in 1967 as the single-screen Montclair Theater, the venue had just had a grand reopening as a triplex earlier that spring on March 25, 1977. It sadly no longer stands. Just a couple of miles to the northeast, Allen would see Empire and Jedi at the UA Town Center Plaza Sixplex on the corner of Central Avenue and San Bernardino Street. Now home to a Hindu temple, the building began its life as a multiplex on June 11, 1980. Empire opened there in 70 a couple weeks later on June 27th for an impressive 32-week engagement, and Jedi debuted there on its opening day in 1983, also in 70, for a 28-week run of its own. 70 or so miles up the 210 and 118 freeways, Sean mentions two theaters in the San Fernando Valley where he'd seen the original Star Wars. One being the Topanga Theater in Woodland Hills, which also ran Star Wars for an 18-week run starting on August 17, 1977. A larger nearby AMC multiplex spelled the end for the Topanga in early 2000, and it would host a furniture store before being demolished in 2007. More impactful for Sean was the Larwin Theater in Simi Valley, which, like the Topanga, had opened in the fall of 1965 and been twinned with a second screen in the 1970s. Run by Metropolitan Theaters and surrounded by retail stores and an outdoor shopping center, the Larwin was Simi's first indoor cinema. The local paper's announcement of its opening made sure to mention its contemporary design motif with Venetian terrazzo floors and red vinyl wall panels with a cork inset design. Very 60s. At one point, the lobby was apparently adorned with a wallpaper collage of scenes from blockbusters of the 60s and 70s, from James Bond and Jaws to, of course, Star Wars. The original film made its way to the Larwin for a four-week run in the summer of 1978, on July 28th, two weeks into its first official re-release, which could also be considered more of an extension of its first run given the fact that some theaters had been playing it continuously to that point. Star Wars would play there for its 1979 re-release as well. The Larwin is yet another 60s-era venue that no longer exists, but sounds like a great place to catch a matinee on a sweltering hot day in the valley. Which is most days. Lastly, Adam mentions having likely first seen Return of the Jedi somewhere in Woodfield, Illinois, and there's a decent chance that this is at the Plitz Woodfield Fourplex in Schaumburg, which opened Jedi on May 25, 1983 in 70mm for an 18-week stint. Opened in 1971 as a pair of, quote, completely new rocking chair theaters to serve all of northern Illinois, the Woodfield has also long since bitten the dust. Alright, respects paid to the fallen theaters, time to hit the feature presentation, beginning with Alan Kalachi's Star Wars story. And now for our feature presentation. I grew up in the Inland Empire region of uh, Southern California, which I, I'm still uh, reside there today, actually. I think before Star Wars, I 
was hugely, hugely into the old reruns of the Adam West uh, Batman series. It was my first uh, passions, fandom or otherwise. Love that. Um, the Beatles were another one of my early uh, passions outside of Star Wars. In terms of early movie-going memories, were there any particular movies that had an impact on you or, or any favorite local theaters that you remember going to often? Yeah, um, it's not there anymore, but the San Dimas Canyon Theater, which was run by this old couple, and every Wednesday night they would show old films, and they would have little raffles from the local bakery and stuff, and they would show Lawrence of Arabia or you know classic movies like that. The first movie that really impacted me, my younger brother and myself pestered my dad into taking us to go see Jaws when we were like ages like six and nine, maybe. It freaked us out, but in a good way. We loved it. And of course, my mom got upset with my dad for taking us to go see Jaws. We forgot to tell our mom, quote unquote. <laughs> I'm guessing that happened with a lot of kids that age. So how did you first become aware of Star Wars? It first hopped on my radar because the Marvel comic uh, came out, if I remember correctly, before the movie was released. Being a huge comic fan, and Marvel had been kind of pumping it up a lot, um, it first got on my radar for the first issue of the first Marvel comics, which was kind of had dramatically different from what the film actually was. Yeah, it seems to be quite different in some places. Uh, so getting to where you saw the original film, do you remember the specific theater and who you saw it with? Yeah, it was with my brother uh, and my dad took us. Uh, we didn't get in trouble for um, going to see Star Wars, though. Um, and there was an old theater called the Montclair Iflex, which at the time was outrageous that there was a, be a movie theater with three screens, not just one, but three. So it was jaw-dropping and state-of-the-art at the time. And, you know, it was only three, but it was huge. It was probably 200, 300-seat theater. So, and, you know, lining up for hours around the theater, wrapping around the theater and stuff. And just blown away from the first shot, right, of the destroyer floating above you. So do you have any memories of what the theater looked like at the time or, or the neighborhood it was in? Um, Montclair is kind of a, a blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges kind of city. Um, so theater, it wasn't the nicest theater, despite having this three whole theaters in the area, but, uh, it had a charm and a character, the sticky floors, the smell of popcorn, some, some torn seats, right? With the duct tape on it, but, uh, we loved it. And aside from that initial shot, what scene or scenes had the most lasting impact from initial viewings and how many times did you end up seeing it when it was first released? Probably about four times during its initial lease, but it got reissued. To me, like um, the Inland Empire, where we're at, can sometimes seem like a wasteland. 40 minutes from L.A. or Pasadena or but if you're, you know, nine years old and don't have a car, you're in the middle of like nothing. So to me, and the scene that still sticks with me the most is a famous scene of Luke just looking out at the two sons on Tatooine. And imagining a, a, a future of excitement and action and adventure. That's a scene that still sticks to me. And any special memories from the lead up to The Empire Strikes Back and where you saw that? Yeah, right then we were such huge. My friends, my younger brother Dennis, we were such huge fans. And they had opened an even bigger state-of-the-art theater in Montclair called the UA6. And it opened the week Empire Strikes Back 
So we really didn't sleep much the night before. We wanted to go to the first screening. This was before midnight screenings. So we literally walked probably about, I don't know, seven, eight miles. That morning, we were on summer vacation to uh, see the Empire Strikes Back. We had the time of our life. My friend's sister, one of the goofy ushers, was trying to entertain people at line and took a, had a wooden spoon he was using as a mic. Tapped my friend's sister's Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, cheap plastic helmet. The top and the helmet cracked open, and we just thought it was hilarious. And I just remember walking out of that movie like on cloud nine, like, wow. Like, with a walk down to the theater to see Empire Strikes Back seemed like it took forever. The walk home seemed like five minutes because we were all just comparing notes and about what we just seen and exciting about it. So um, I think sometimes with any major uh, movie like that, it's the people and the time and the air and the place you're at, too, that add a lot to it. And how about Return of the Jedi? Where did you see that and what was your takeaway? Again, and I was probably maybe a freshman, um, so a little bit older, but still a nerd. Same excitement. Um, still wasn't driving, so maybe I was like 15, maybe just turned 16. No, maybe a little younger. Um, and so we did the same walk to the same UA6 like uh, theater. Thrilled, we're gonna see what happened to Han Solo. And about halfway through it, I was like, I'm watching Star Wars, but I don't know. It seems like they're starting to repeat a lot of things from the first movie, A New Hope. <laughs> I don't like these Ewoks, because you know, I'm being a Star Wars obsessive. I had heard the rumors it was supposed to be the Wookiee planet. So I'm like, they're teddy bears, this, these aren't Wookiees. So, um, that was my first Star Wars disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> has it grown on you at all over the years, or has it always remained third peg? Third peg, but I do like um, moments, particularly the, the beginning moments, right, in, in Jabba the Hutt's lair and the introduction of Jabba. It's probably still my favorite part of that. <laughs> Here's Adam Tuckerman to share his memories. So I actually grew up in the Midwest, and I well, I was I was born in '77, so I don't know that there was there was really a pre-Star Wars in my existence. I mean, by the time I was old enough to be aware of anything, Star Wars had been been out. Return uh, Empire had probably already been out. And I think just when I was starting to kind of be aware of the universe, by that time Return was coming out. So, you know, so it was just, it was just ubiquitous. Um, you know, so listening to other people talk about sort of like pre-Star Wars, it just seems like that's what always, always existed around me. And the only thing I can think of that sort of rivaled it as a kid would maybe, I remember being really into G.I. Joe. But I think that would have been sort of the same era. So about the time that I was actually playing with real toys, you know, it was like, okay, what, what's your action figure? Well, Star Wars action figures. Yeah, I have a couple friends who were born in 77, and they were big Return of the Jedi kids. So did you see Jedi in the theater? I think I did. I seem to remember I did. And I think I went to see it with, I think just my maybe my mom and I went and saw it together. That one I vividly remember seeing in the theater, um, whereas the other two... 
I, I saw on TV, you know, they already existed. You were already seeing them on reruns or on HBO or whatever else. Um, but Return, I, I remember seeing in the movie theater. Do you happen to remember which theater or which city that was? Um, I want to say like Woodfield, Illinois. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was someplace, yeah, someplace in the Midwest. I don't remember the exact one. But I, I do vividly remember seeing it and i vividly remembered the intro scene where they're finally going to jabba's palace and r2 and c3po are talking to the little robot in the door there because i just remember that being huge and then for some reason i have this vivid memory of when they're walking up to the palace and you see all of the little animals like scurrying about the desert kind of in the background or in the side and for whatever reason just on the huge screen that just seemed so cool because i was like oh there's stuff over- look look there's stuff over there you're missing on the action, Adam. <laughs> Even now watching it, that's one of those dumb things I'll look at and be like, yep, that's the little space squirrel. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I feel like growing up watching them on TV and whatnot, you, you really don't have that widescreen view. And seeing them on the big screen, there's so much else to see. And with Star Wars, it seemed increasingly intentional to fill the frame as much as possible. And they still do that. Yeah, they were all those, well, all those movies were very good about filling in those weird little details. Or, I mean, we've seen the documentaries about like all the crazy detail that went into the spaceships and the Death Star and everything. And, you know, all that weird little piping and stuff that they put on it. Um, Just all that, that detail, I guess, as a kid. The other thing that I thought was interesting having not originally seen them in theater is this occurred to me just rewatching them is how much of my memories or how much of the movie is shaped by the fact that my original uh, interaction with them or viewing of them was probably broadcast TV. And although there's not that much to cut out, you're going to cut out some stuff just for time. Cause I'll occasionally see scenes and I'm like, that's, that's not the, that's not what I remember happening just because like you said, a, you don't notice the details because maybe you're used to watching it on a smaller TV, you know, from when I was growing up. Or again, you know, they've cut out these little bits because that's where they got to put in a commercial. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And then also with all the releases over the years, there's always something a little different or in other cases, very different. And when I watched the original versions again, after years of only seeing the special editions, there was a lot that had been like totally overwritten in my memory. I mean, nowadays when you see it, I'm not even quite sure which version I'm seeing. But just this weekend, I was on one of the channels watching Empire Strikes Back. And there are a ton of little mannerisms that Harrison Ford does that I just had either forgotten about or never noticed that are just genius and hilarious to watch. Or the scene where Vader chokes out the guy after they finally find you know everybody off down in Hoth. And the guy gets choked out, falls down, and the guy in the background just kind of like turns around real nonchalantly. Mm-hmm. And then is like, oh, he gets choked out. And then just turns back to his console like he doesn't want to be noticed. <laughs> I don't, for some reason, I thought that was the most hilarious thing I'd ever seen. I don't know if I caught all of those details as a kid. And the best line is just where Han hops on the Tauntaun, is being going to be told that the Tauntaun is going to freeze, and just yells, I'll see you in hell, and then rides <laughs> off. That's the t-shirt I want. <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember that being a head-scratcher as a kid. It kind of questions your sense of what reality was within Star Wars. Uh, so was there any specific scene or moment, and it could be from any of the films, but one that's been the most memorable for you? 
the scene that actually freaked me out was from A New Hope, and it's the scene where Luke, you know, is afraid that his family's been killed, so he goes back to the farm, and sure enough, the family is the two skeletons. And for whatever reason, I remember in the original version that I saw, it was a real quick cut where you see the two skeletons having been, you know, set on fire. But it feels like in the more recent versions, they linger on it more. Like just a a beat or two longer. Because it was always like, as a kid, it was like, oh, it's creepy, but I want to see more. Whereas now I think I get to finally see more. So (laughs) thank goodness for technology. Now it's time to hear Obi Sean's origin story. So I moved to the Southern California area when I was about five. My mom kind of grabbed me from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'd been born and brought me out. And we started living in the San Fernando Valley. And it was, um, I was born in 1967. So it was like the early 1970s. And parents really weren't keeping the best eye on their kids at the time. And so I had kind of run of the neighborhood and, um, you know, my, my thing on, on television and, and whatnot, uh, similar to Alan was Batman was the, the, uh, Adam West Batman series. It was like my favorite thing ever. And we'd run around the neighborhood. We played Batman and do stuff like that. But we also had the agency because our parents weren't paying that much attention to go to the movie theater that was right down the street. We, I, you know, get a quarter and we'd go down and buy a ticket and sit in on the kitty matinees that they had on Saturday and Sunday. And they had raffles and little prizes and you'd, you know, get sugared up and they would show something like, um, uh, Mary Poppins or they would, would show Robin Hood, animated Robin Hood, things like that. And so I was watching a lot of that stuff as a little kid and, then, you know, those were all backed up by comic books and things. So you'd, you'd watch Robin Hood and then you could find the Robin Hood Disney comic. And, and we'd go to Kmart and Kmart had a great comic book selection. And so that just kind of like fed my thing because Batman was my guy. I was like Batman all the time, which was really cool. And as I got older and things settled down a little more in my life, television was was it and there was so much sci-fi going on from the local los angeles stations that we were watching space 1999 which was pretty current and star trek was in reruns but channel five out here and channel nine uh channel uh channel nine was khj and khj was really into showing anything they didn't have to pay for and as a result they would show you these old 1930s, 1940s serials, and they would start them at midnight on Friday night, and they would go all the way to about 8 o'clock Saturday morning before the cartoons really kicked in. And you could watch, uh, you know, Gene Autry and the Phantom Empire, or you could watch uh, the Harry Houdini stuff, or Tarzan, or Superman, you know, whatever they were decided to show they would run these things that were essentially in the public domain because they were cheap and they didn't have to pay for it. And, and also at the time they were doing it, it was kind of a special deal because most TV stations signed off at about 
one thirty or two in the morning and just went to static until they picked up their broadcast day. But they they leave their signal open all night long, and you could watch these things. And then Channel Five would show, uh, you know, creature features at five p.m. They'd show the same movie Monday through Friday. If you tuned in on Monday and you saw Johnny Sacco and Giant Robo, you could tune in the next day and see it again and the next day and see it again. And and so by the time you're on your fifth viewing of this, you're seeing the dialogue, you're sort of doing your own little kid version of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're making fun of it. You're yelling at the screen. Your, your parents are like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're a weird kid. But, you know, that kind of stuff like completely influenced me as a kid. To the point where, you know, still it affects me. I have a turtle in the other room named Gamera after the giant uh, kaiju monster because, you know, we used to watch Gamera monster movies uh, all week. And it was it was pretty great stuff. And, you know, being a kid in Los Angeles and being the age I was uh, leading into Star Wars, I, I, uh, I had just turned 10 when Star Wars came out. And it was like the perfect time because the way... George Lucas was influenced by all of these movie serials. I had seen them by the time Star Wars came out and and just accidentally had had the same priming that Lucas had had when he sat down and he originally wanted to do Flash Gordon and couldn't get the rights. So he wrote Star Wars instead. He made his own version. But I'd already seen Flash Gordon. So I knew where it came from, uh, at least on a subconscious level. And yeah, oh my gosh, it was awesome. It was a huge influence on me when I was a kid. Yeah, so you were already familiar with the language then. So how did you first discover Star Wars? Because my family was, uh, you know, knew I was such a such a nerd and always had some kind of sci-fi toy around. I had, you know, Micronauts or I had the Space 1999 Eagle that I got this big three foot long spaceship that I got one year for Christmas, uh, that had terrible action figures, but was a really great spaceship. Um, and I always had these sci-fi toys, Star Trek, whatever was going on. Um, whenever something would appear on their horizon that they thought I would enjoy, they would bring it to my attention. And there was something in like, um, you know, uh, ladies home journal or better homes and gardens or something like that, that was talking about, this new movie that was being created right now that was uh, a cool science fiction thing. And I think it said that it was in the vein of Logan's Run, because Logan's Run was like the most recent sci-fi film at the time uh, that had really hit big. And they had uh, a poster, just a picture of the poster that was the Hildebrandt-style poster of vader ghosted in the background with luke and leia in the foreground the droids and the spaceships and the, the very stereotypical poster that we saw on just about everything and so i had that taped to my wall above my desk for quite a while before um thanksgiving of 1976 had rolled around and we went to thanksgiving and i'm like nine years old and my uncle again because he knows i like all of this stuff gave me the book of star wars this is like six months before the movie came out and the novelization of the movie was out and he's like i read this this is so cool you totally have to read it and so he <laughs> gave me the book and so i read star wars before i even saw it and the book 
as as the comic books were to follow, uh, because they were written and created before the final edit of the movie, they have all of these scenes that aren't in the the movie at all and the characterizations are different and and in fact they they talk about luke's parents i guess who were like you know his, his dad's name was tan tan skywalker there's like all this weird stuff that was like wildly different when the movie finally came out but it was like memorizing passages for it and it was written in such a way uh, alan dean foster ghost wrote the book for george lucas based on his screenplay and it was written in such a way that it sounded like much the way the movie turned out being it sounded like one slice of a much larger universe and it was it was super cool and it just i already thought star wars was going to be kind of a big deal when it came out but you know when you're a nine-year-old kid what do you know <laughs> you're just like it sounds great to me but man reading that book in advance was kind of weird and it, it also kind of positions me in a really strange place of being a star wars fan like before the movie came out yeah, it's it's always a trip to consider how much content was actually available before the film came out. So where did you see the original movie and any standout memories from that initial viewing? Uh, man, oh, I got a lot. We lived in uh, Reseda at the time the movie came out. And uh, Reseda or Simi Valley? No, we lived in Simi Valley. And um, my stepdad worked in Hollywood. And so my mom would like drive him into Hollywood and then come back with the car and then go pick him up. And she sometimes she would have to kill time. And because of that uh, kind of situation, she ended up seeing Star Wars opening day because my dad's office was like up the hill uh, to the northwest of the Chinese theater. And so. She went to go get him. He's like, no, I've got a meeting. I'm not going to be done for a while. Why don't you do something to kill some time? And so she walks down to the Chinese theater to see this star movie that just opened and just walks into the theater. It's there's not a crowd. There's no nothing. She just walks in and sits down and watches Star Wars. And she comes home and she's, uh, you know, she's picked up my dad. She brought him home and she says, come right home from school. We have to go somewhere. And my mom's not prone to spontaneity, uh, but, you know, of course, we came home straight from school and we left and we picked up uh, my step uncle, who was two years older than I was. And we went into Hollywood. Second day, the movies open and we go see Star Wars at the Chinese theater. And again, we just walked into the theater there, you know, no lines around the block, no nothing like that. We just we bought tickets. At the time, the box office was out on the street and you would walk down a red carpet into the Chinese theater. And we walked in and we sat down in pretty great seats to watch Star Wars. And it's uh, the audience is enthusiastic. And I'm probably one of the youngest people there uh, at 10 years old. And the lights go down and the music comes up and the uh, opening credits show and you're like, okay, fun movie. I have to read this, whatever. But again, I'd been watching these serials. And so it wasn't like a big surprise to have some sort of opening crawl on the screen. And then the um, opening battle starts. They pan down to Tatooine and the Tantive V4 zips by. And the Star Destroyer is chasing it. Now, at the time in the Chinese theater, all of the theaters in Hollywood, in fact, were a little bit run down. 
And the Chinese theater, which was known as, as Groman's at the time, um, had been refurbished just a little bit in 1974 for a movie that was called Earthquake. And Earthquake was basically designed as, you know, a horror disaster movie. And to reinforce that, they had put these gigantic bass shakers into the theater, sense around speakers. Those speakers were still there behind the screen. And because they were so resonant, they had to put nets over the ceiling to catch the little pieces of plaster that were being shaken loose from the ceiling from these giant bass shaker speakers. And so when the Star Destroyer started coming overhead, the entire theater began to shake and rumble. And not only did you see this ship that wouldn't end, you felt it in your bones in that same subsonic way that the people had felt the earthquake in the earthquake movie. We were f feeling that Star Destroyer. And that was just mind blowing. That was it. And, and I was like completely hooked from, from that moment on. I just, uh, I walked out of that theater and Star Wars was like my life. <laughs> You can't go into Hollywood every time to see, or I couldn't as a 10-year-old, couldn't get down there to see it every time. And I did see it three or four times more in the Chinese um, before it left. But my local theater in, in Simi Valley was, uh, was actually this Larwin Theater in Simi Valley. It used to be one theater, and then they knocked out a wall and they made it a twin. And so at the time I went there, it was called the Larwin Twin and was next to a thrifty's drug store where we used to get our cheap candy before we went into the theater. And we would spend all our time going to see Star Wars in that theater, like again and again and again. And they didn't care. Once you went in, they didn't care if you left. And in fact, I made a deal with the teenagers who worked the theater so that I could just come in in the morning during the summer, stake out a seat. If I brought my own cup, uh, and bag, I could have all the popcorn and soda I wanted. And then I'd watch the movie. And then when the movie was over, I'd mark my seat so nobody took it. I'd tidy the theater so the teenagers didn't have to do it. And then watch the movie again. And I did this most of the summer. And what was really cool is it went from being, oh my God, Star Wars is the greatest movie ever. This is like the best piece of entertainment I've ever seen in my life, to wow, look at all that weird stuff in the background to, oh my gosh, look at all the detail on those models to how did they shoot that? And then to, you know, look at how the story's put together. That's really interesting the way they did that. And it was like a film course, you know, if you want to just study George Lucas based on one movie, it was this total film course for me as a 10 year old boy on how to make the most awesome movie that I'd ever seen in my life. And it was just crazy. It was just living in that theater where, uh, like, like Alan, that was the, the movie I had seen jaws in. They would hold, hold these double features. And so I saw jaws with a movie called candle shoe, which had Jodie Foster in it. And it was like your typical, you know, goofy Disney family hijinks movie, uh, which followed the, uh, shark eating people movie. And which was always kind of funny. And so that that theater in Simi Valley was like my home base. And then whenever I went to visit family elsewhere in Southern California, 
I could usually talk them into going to see it if they hadn't seen it. And so we went to like the Topanga theater in, uh, in the Topanga Canyon that was near, you know, grandma and grandpa's house. Or we'd go to a place in like Pasadena when we went to go visit the great grandparents or aunts and uncles and things. And so as a result, I saw it in all, just theaters all over Southern California, but this, the Simi Valley one was my home base. And then the special treat theater as almost any movie is, if you get to see it there, was uh groman's chinese which was like really amazing but you know to my 10 year old mind it was like it was like the cartoons where the atomic blast comes out of the top of their head right so shifting to the second and third movies when empire came out where were you at at that point and what do you remember about seeing it in the theater uh i was still in simi valley at the time that came out and um i ended up uh sort of like Sneaking out of my house and hitching with teenagers into Hollywood to see it in Hollywood again, except it wasn't at the uh, it wasn't at the Chinese. It was at the Egyptian theater and uh, Empire and Jedi both opened at the Egyptian theater, which now the American Cinematheque is in. And it's very nice. And they've done a big restoration on it. It's really terrific. But at the time back then, homeless people were living in the forecourt. It smelled like pee. Uh, it was nowhere you wanted to spend the night, but we did anyway. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it was, it was actually pretty, pretty great. And I, but I had to go and do it. And, and so we, we saw the, the late night show and then beat it back home so that my parents never knew I was gone. <laughs> um, which was, you know, kind of, it was worth the risk to me to go see the empire strikes back. Uh, and to do it with a crowd of people that appreciated it as much as I did. Um, and as, as a, you know, younger kid, uh, I was what, I guess I had just turned uh, 13 at the time empire came out and that, um, that was really worth it to me to take that risk. And, and then empire being so amazing and completely validating that my risk was, was, you know, well-placed. Uh, it was cool. It was a, it was a pretty huge adventure tinged with that. Oh God, what if I get caught <laughs> kind of, kind of thing? Um, things were a little better for return of the Jedi when I, um, I was in high school at the time when Jedi came out and I, I wrote a note. I faked a note from my mom to go. And again, I went into Hollywood saw it in Hollywood and then came back and skipped school and saw it with my friends, at the local theater in thousand Oaks where I was living at by the time. And, uh, and I got caught for faking the note and I was in a program. Um, I'd been legally blind most of my life. And so my, my eyes didn't let me drive and I've had all sorts of issues with school and learning and all that kind of thing. And so I had a caseworker at my high school who came in and waved the note in front of my face and said, what is this? Why did you write this? I said, well, I had to go see star Wars. It, you know, it was a moral imperative that I go do this. And she got so mad at me, but not because I, I did it. She's like, all you had to do was ask me, I would have written you a note. <laughs> I'm like, Oh man, that, uh, yeah, that would have been way better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is classic. Uh, so, so when Jedi came out, what was your reaction to it? And, did you get a sense that Star Wars was maybe coming to an end? Well, we had all known the rumors that George had written nine to 12 movies. 
But it seemed like such a definitive end for Return of the Jedi, at least as far as Luke Skywalker's story went, that we had all pretty much bought into the idea that they were done. Uh, It did look like they were recycling ideas. It's like, oh, gosh, it's another Death Star. Really? All right. Well, um, why did they just build a bigger one if the first one didn't work? That was kind of weird. So you you kind of but but as somebody who knew the old serials and and that kind of thing and and what space opera was and i'd become like a giant space opera fan at the time and star wars is very firmly in the space opera category where it's just big and epic and crazy and it doesn't always end on a happy note and you know um i i cut star wars a lot of slack because it's not it's not shakespeare it's not like they're making, you know, the Ten Commandments. It's it the the weight behind it isn't the same as as the you know big epic things that you're supposed to walk out of and go. That was an earth shattering motion picture. You know, it just wasn't. It's not 2001 even. It's not just isn't in the same category. It's just a big fun, doofy movie. And being able to enjoy Star Wars on that level. Has, is the thing that has let me enjoy the prequel films and the sequel trilogy and all of that, just because, you know, yeah, okay, there are giant plot holes you can fly a Star Destroyer through. But if you just kind of roll with it and get the entertainment out of it that you're meant to get out of, uh, you know, you can, you can have a lot of fun with it. But Star Wars by that time, by Return of the Jedi, had really meant a lot to me on a very personal level because... Not not only, you know, being right there at the at the start of it for the first movie at 10 years old, but going through Empire Strikes Back uh, and being being in middle school at the time, I was a little kid. I mentioned that my eyes didn't work very well. I was a prime target for bullies and Star Wars saved my butt more times than I can count because of like, say, Yoda, where I learned I could do yoda's voice and and i could do these impressions of like luke skywalker and darth vader and these characters as a little kid and that was the thing that would like save me and also made it like really really personal where kids would come up and go give me your lunch money and you'd have to fork over the lunch money and then eventually it was hey do that silly voice and you know threaten me with a fist and I'd do the silly voice and they'd go away. And then eventually it became, oh my gosh, you got to hear this guy do this voice. This is so cool. And it went from being a thing that kept me from getting beaten up to being the thing that like kind of made me fit in, even though it was not cool to like Star Wars, you know, to be a nerd, uh, it still kind of saved my butt. And so, you know, even, even up through high school, it was the same thing. It kind of, you know, it, it sharpened my sense of humor and my performance skills. And I could sort of, you know, talk and joke and entertain my way out of trouble. Uh, thanks to the star Wars movies, uh, you know, and things like say the Muppets and that kind of thing. But it also kind of plays into the stuff I do now. Cause like I do 160 charity events a year at the library, of course, being, being a huge part of it. But I've got my little Star Wars car that's got R2-D2 on it and laser guns and wings on the car. And it looks like a spaceship. I dress as Obi-Wan Kenobi and I walk into like a library or a kid's hospital. And 
So the moment I walk in and I'm Obi-Wan Kenobi, I stay in the character and I do that the whole day and it's it's fine. And the kids like it just as well. And then I've got a Yoda puppet and Master Yoda, I have to be as well. You know, and it's the same thing I did when I was a kid. Now I'm doing it for kids and it's a huge deal. And it's like really super cool. And and so all of these skills that saved my butt when I was young now kind of entertain other people that I'm old. Yeah, so this is a, a perfect segue to talk about the library Star Wars Day event. So Alan and Adam, uh, it'd be great to hear about how each of you made your way to careers in librarianship and to Rancho Cucamonga. Alan, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, well, I had a bunch of horrible jobs between the ages of maybe 19, 22. Fast food, telemarketer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I finally landed a job as a page at a local library. And thus began my career. And I worked my way up from page to a clerk to eventually getting my, you know, MLIS and being a librarian. I've always loved libraries. I like the work that we do. And um, I was fortunate enough to land at Rancho Cucamonga, where I was able to marry libraries with my love of other Star Wars, Harry Potter, pop culture type things. And um, find some like-minded people such as Adam to help me do a lot of these crazy events. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's great work. And Adam, how about you? How did you end up taking up librarianship? I got into librarian or the library world through the technology door. So I was started out as the computer guy or a computer guy um, and then working my way up. And then I think eventually just got to a point where I knew too many of the passwords and they couldn't get rid of me you know they had to keep me around or nothing would work um so i came in that route and then while i was still working got my my degree and everything else and then just kind of kept going in that realm but i think it always it came from i think the non-traditional route of things which allowed me to kind of have a melding of the minds with Alan where I think he same thing with him is we just kind of came from outside we were feral librarians and so it was always sort of an idea of okay well how can we make the library world fun for like where we're coming from and they took advantage of it that way <laughs> I really like that term feral librarian um, so Sean uh, you talked a little bit about your background in fandom and charity work. How did you come to the Rancho Cucamonga Library event? And uh, how did you get connected with Alan and Adam? I think that um, the the biggest event uh, preceding the library was the Star Wars Where uh, Science Meets Imagination exhibit at the California Science Center. Uh, 2007 had been like a really crazy year where we marched in the Rose Parade as stormtroopers, uh, and then the, the day after I started at the California Science Center showing Star Wars on their IMAX screen and indoctrinating the uh, entire workforce of volunteers to get them ready for this big Star Wars exhibit that was coming from the Boston Museum of Science and Technology. And um, I had done a lot of science lectures. That was the exhibit that we built the Yoda puppet for. Um, we'd done all this thing for about six months. It had gone on. And one of the people there who lived more out towards the Rancho Cucamonga way, uh, had recommended me, uh, our friend Carrie had recommended me to, uh, to the guys and said, Hey, if you want 
to have somebody kind of help run your day uh, or or to to you know MC it, you might want to talk to Sean. And and they'd already had one that had been pretty successful, and uh, we're looking to sort of expand it. And I just kind of like jumped in with with ideas and and maybe the the primary idea of making everything kind of flow smoothly together. And I don't um, the the library event that we started was very different from the library event as it <laughs> as it is now, which which is fascinating. But you know, I've always been behind literacy programs, and I do a lot of readings for libraries and things. And to be able to to be involved in the planning of an event like this was kind of new to me, but also, you know, a really exciting opportunity. So a Star Wars day at the library, year zero, as Adam calls it, it was all the other librarians were on Memorial Day holiday, all no children's staff. And so they said, you do children's literacy, Alan, do whatever program you want for Family Saturday. We don't care. And I said, Star Wars. And to tell you how long ago, I reached out to the groups via MySpace. Um, Adam was working that day. And the days leading up to it, Adam was like, this is just going to be you coming out in a bathrobe, Alan, like saying you're a Jedi and reading where the wild things are. And so Adam got to work that day. And I, we only had about seven or eight characters, tops, a couple stormtroopers, maybe a Darth. But there was only like four or five of us there, and we got like 200-plus people, right? No advertisements. I put some of my Star Wars collectibles in our little display case, and we had like 200 people and like four staff people. And so I think Adam was having a bad day that day because I think one of your cats was sick or something like that. And Adam seeing the stormtroopers in actual gear that looked like they walked off a Star Wars movie, blew his mind, helped make his day. Then he said, okay, next year... Um, I want to help you plan this. We're going to do it right. And at that same time, Carrie, who Sean just mentioned, said, I know this guy, Sean. She's like, I thought library events, I'm talking to like 15 kids. She's like, you need Sean if you're going to have crowds this big (laughs) to take it on. (laughs) Yeah. So you start with this day with fourth staff people entertaining 200. Where did it build from there? Uh, Maybe we could get into the stages of its expansion over the years. So um, our director at the time, Michelle Pereira, uh, approached Adam and I, and she loved the turnout. The community loved it. And she's, we were doing cultural arts nights at the time, which would be every quarter. We'd do one Friday night. We'd get the big courtyard outside the library cultural arts center to do a big event. And so she says, we need to do this like on a little bit bigger scale next year with this crowd. Imagine we could probably get 500 people or 600 and so um, that that year is vital. That's the year Obi Sean came on, and that was the year Adam and I would be on the phone for I don't know till midnight, one a.m. Many, many, many nights plotting what would become um, the seeds of it. At least that's how I remember it. Maybe Sean and Adam have something to add to that particular year where it really started to blossom. No, there were there was a lot of extra time but i do remember that that year zero and just thinking like okay it's going to be alan in a bathrobe and a bunch of people from with their target costumes and (laughs) it was anything but and you see of course you know the stormtroopers in their just hyper legitimate armor their cannon armor and then also 
people with just the lightsabers themselves being more valuable than anything else I own. And so just that spectacle was amazing. And then, of course, they are all ridiculously nice people, which is not always the case with, like, the library performer world. But here are these people who, you know, if they're not at the library, they're at a children's hospital. They're just incredibly, genuinely nice people. So the whole thing just blew my mind. And it was, like Alan said, it was like, okay, next year, next year we're going to do this uh, with five staff people. Um, and then each year just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then of course the, again, Alan is correct with Sean being, I think the huge linchpin in all of it, which was then we could kind of, for a large chunks of it, we could say, Hey, you've got 30 minutes. Here's a microphone. Enjoy. We'll be, uh, over there wrangling Ewoks or whatever. And then (laughs) Sean could just do his thing. And it was amazing. And if you've ever seen the videos of him online, like he just has that like performer charisma that you just get out of his way. And maybe that was the smartest thing that Alan and I ever did was yeah. just gave him the microphone and then let him do his thing. Cause by the time the event starts, there's not a whole lot Alan and I can do. You know, we've been planning this thing for however long it's off. It's rolling, you know, the, the boulders rolling down the hill and you know, so it's just handed over to Sean and let him do his thing. And it's just awesome to watch. The thing that was really crazy is that you guys put that much trust into me (laughs) to make that happen. And because from my standpoint, you know how you have a skill and it's what you do and you don't really think too much about it. Like, like, you know, Alan is a musician and he just plays music. It just comes out of him. And that's my kind of thing is I get on stage and you give me a microphone and it comes out of me and I can make things happen and I can organize things hopefully smoothly, but it's a lot of trust to put in somebody for which I was really grateful. And then to subsequently over the years become the face of this event outside of the event where people will come up to me in target, uh, 45 miles away from the library. I live, I live by Los Angeles international airport. If I go any further West, I will get wet, uh, in the ocean and people come up to me in the stores and went, I was at Victoria gardens and at the Rancho Cucamonga public library. And I was there for star Wars day. And how much fun was that? When are you doing that next? And people remember the event. They look forward to doing it again and will drive distances to, to get there, to, to make it happen which which is absolutely crazy. And so, you know, there's there's not a day that I don't feel really grateful for being attached to it. And uh, also the the rest of the groups, it's kind of worth mentioning that the Rebel Legion, which are the the hero uh, costumers and the 501st Legion, which are the villain costumers. Then we have the, the Mandalorian mercs who do the Boba Fett style Mando costumes. We've got the Saber Guild. We've got a whole bunch of groups that have all uh, volunteered their energy and piled in. And from, from day one, uh, these groups volunteered their, their time and their costuming expertise and their, their background and their star Wars knowledge into making the event really great and every event that they're connected with. And we, we don't have a treasurer. We don't collect money for ourselves. We don't charge for what we do. And it's one of the interesting things that I find kind of sets us apart from a lot of library performers. And I've been at events where they've hired, you know, 
Timmy the birthday Jedi to come teach lightsabers or something like that, which is always kind of awkward. Um, but everybody to the tune of about 250 people now that we have that show up in costume and volunteers and they run booths and they do whatever. Everybody does that for free uh, out of the out of the knowledge that they're helping promote literacy. They're helping the community. They're promoting the library uh, and and they're, you know, bettering the city's programs by doing this. It just blows my mind. And everybody shows up. And it's like if you've ever been involved in a play. It's it's that kind of of atmosphere where everybody's in one giant room. They're all sweaty and crazy and changing and getting into and out of costumes. And we have to take shifts so we don't have multiple Darth Vader's cruising around because that gets awkward when we have to explain that. And, you know, it can be the big parade that we start the event with or it can be the big dance disco number that we end our stage programming with whatever it is all the performers buy into it as well as the community that are in attendance buy into it and we never get any flack from everybody going you know star wars is fake and you're adults why don't you just grow up (laughs) we don't we don't get that everybody who comes by really buys into it even the people who just wander in off the street because they've been shopping at the mall next door and they're like what the heck is this all about? And then suddenly they're part of it. And it's just absolutely amazing. It, it's funny you mentioned the juggler, Sean, because a staff member who will go unnamed, this was the second year right before we went big and you came on board, Sean, said, um, you know what we re- might look want to look into for your this event, if it's going to be a nighttime big event, is hiring a juggler. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which Adam would give her grief over that for years. Nothing says reading literacy like a juggler. <laughs> uh, in wow. my defense, I did not lose my mind in that meeting, did I, Alan? I kept my cool under, under duress. Well, at the risk of outing you guys, I, I will say that the first year that I attended uh, did uh, feature Jar Jar Binks in a water tank. That was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome, and I love it, and it's totally cool. Uh, but it's it's honestly one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in a library. <laughs> uh, that, that's that that oh uh, yeah that that pretty much captures what I I love so much about it. I mean, it's 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 a, it has a bit of a, a mecca feel, like a Star Wars mecca. Like if you if you just happen to be around and you see all this commotion and activity and just just bizarre things going on. And it's just, it's so much fun. Um, I like to get a, a favorite moment from each of you. So Alan, let's start with you. What would you say is your highlight from the events history so far? Well, there's different, different um, kinds, just like some of the crazy popularity things. But I think for me, just like these little moments, right? I remember one year uh, a woman came and specifically tracked me down and was like, are you the person that helps put this together? And I said, yes. And she had a, an autistic child, maybe about seven or eight. And she was just like, thank you. I've never seen my child uh, smile so widely for so long as they did today, seeing all their characters. Another moving moment 
a child who was, or maybe a teen that was blind, who actually would watch the movies and hear them, but actually got to feel like a, an R2 unit that one of their R2 builders had brought to feel R2-D2 and the shape and the thing. So those are, those are to me, some of the most precious moments and um, to me and getting some of the guests like Billy D. Williams and, and seeing people like Sean and a lot of our regulars. It's become like a family reunion and yourself and the toy group uh, at this point too. Yeah, that, that sums it up so well. Uh, what about you, Adam? Um, well, I certainly remember the first story that Alan tells and I actually remember... Um, that person also coming to the Harry Potter Day events that we used to do. Again, also with Sean, because um, he has to be incorporated at every library event where it doesn't, doesn't go right. I'm but, greeting. <laughs> I'm really greedy that way. <laughs> <laughs> this little, okay, so the, personally, my favorite Star Wars memory actually is um, Alan had missed one year because he was ill. Um, so I missed a while with that. And then the next year when he was able to be back and be part of it, um, I thought was, for me, it was very, 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 very special, you know, if only cause then I could dump some more of the work onto his lap, <laughs> but it, it was nice to see him back. And I know there were some people like, I think Sean knew that he had, he had not been, you know, that he had been ill or whatnot. And, uh, so it was kind of fun to be able to kind of have this this wink and a nod moment to each other where it was sort of like, okay, we're we're back to normal now. This is great. And then just to keep on going. And that was that really stuck with me. We had a cardboard cutout <laughs> of of Alan and we kept it in our dressing room. And so everybody would gather around him in costumes and take pictures and send them to him. And I think we even dressed up the cardboard cutout in some of our costume pieces. Uh, it was it was hysterical, and we got the whole crowd to like wish him well from the stage, which was really funny. And uh, yeah, you were sorely missed, and we were so glad that uh, that you came back to us unscathed. Yeah, because I was my nerdiest moment in my entire existence. So I was at Cedar Sinai. It was a heart transplant surgery, and I had been probably unconscious for weeks. And I finally come to, and my first words were, "Did I miss Star Wars?" <laughs> <laughs> but um but sean and adam and the rest of the staff that that was incredibly moving they were sending me pictures the entire time and um, i just felt like i was there with them with the standee like sean said or sean having everybody wish me well it was it was it was incredibly moving we were glad that he made it made it back through i have a really weird take on like the good uh, things that happen because there's there's always people that you're like oh man I am so glad that I made that person's day or you know whatever and we get those pretty frequently we've, we've had some weird stuff too where the um the event it had expanded to two days which was a little bit optimistic I think I'm not sure that we're ever going to do that again oh. but the um we did manage to score Billy D. Williams as a guest, and he did a stage panel where everybody could sit in the audience, and one of the local news authors would write uh, or would ask him questions, sort of interview him on stage, which was cool. And then we hijacked him and we brought him outside to read a story to the kids, and we got the kids all lined up and whatnot. And uh, depending on what character i'm dressed as i do the voice so if i'm if i'm obi sean i've got the the british accent or the this this sort of pseudo scottish accent depending on which costume 
Uh, and if I'm Luke Skywalker, I'm pretty much just my normal surfer kind of voice. And uh, I introduced Billy D. Williams to read the story and, you know, gave him this big intro and he's applauding and everything's great. And he leans over to me. He says, I don't know. I think you ought to tell this story because you got the great accent. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that it was completely fake and that I'm from Pittsburgh and not, you know, the UK. And it was it was just so utterly charming that he had bought into it. Uh, and, and man, what a gentleman. He was just an insane, insane gentleman. And then the, the second thing, and I don't I don't mean to out these guys here and I don't want to pimp their gig uh, either. So if I do, I'm really, really sorry. But based on the strength of the Star Wars stuff we did and the Harry Potter stuff that we did, uh, the Rancho Cucamonga Public Library got the National Medal for Museum and Library Service in 2013. And honestly, that that was like a mind blower. I mean, it was a, a huge deal. Uh, it was presented by Michelle Obama. And just to have the library recognized on a national level and to know that you know, the, the Star Wars fans had contributed to it and the Harry Potter fans had contributed to it. That, that was just amazing. And it's, a, you know, we've done a lot of, of stuff to help people on a, on a local and an individual level, but being able to be recognized on a national level was just mind blowing and super, super cool. That's incredible. Wow. It's just awesome. Um, so it's obviously a very different world right now with the pandemic, uh, but where would you all like to see this event go in the meantime and, and also in the future once things start to get back to normal? Well, I, I see, and Sean and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, we've seen the silver lining. We, of course, we'd, we'd much rather be there in person, but um, one of the silver linings we found with having the virtual aspect, particularly getting guests. A lot of guests, you don't have the money or getting somebody out to Cucamonga Memorial Day weekend can be a challenge. But getting somebody to do like a 30 or 60 minute Zoom interview, we found has been um, widened our reach. So that might be something we continue even when we come back to doing it uh, in a physical way, which hopefully, fingers crossed, will be next year. But yeah, so I think some good has come of this. And it's been some challenges, but the other silver lining I see is we've got to document a lot of the things we do, like Cantina uh, Kitchen or Saber Guild or Vader Story Times. And we're going to have a record of that between last year and this year when all is said and done. Uh, I do find it I, somewhat ironic that one of the, you know, it's a problem having a Star Wars day when if you think about it, if there's any group that is ideally suited for this world, it's, of course, you know, an entire legion of people who are wearing a mask already. So <laughs> you know, it seems like the stormtroopers would be perfect for it. Uh, as much as the virtual side of it, you know, maybe the way that things are for a while, there is nothing to compare with standing next to a line of stormtroopers or having some six foot five Mandalorian towering over you and just thinking like this is this is bizarre and i have clearly lost my mind and i'm okay with it um that i think that's one of those things that once you experience it once regardless of your, of your age but especially at a younger uh, more influenced age 
I think that's definitely life changing. Just in where wherever you are at that moment, you're like, this is the coolest place I've ever been. And then that shapes your perception, I think, for life. And it's going to be a shame the longer that we don't get to have that again. The library, though, by moving into a virtual realm for this event is also kind of fulfilling a much needed niche because since we're still, you know, hopefully trying to be on our best behavior and the um, the normal things that we would do, especially as Star Wars volunteers, we would be going to science fiction conventions and things like that uh, and Comic Con, which announced today that they are not going to hold their big San Diego Comic-Con yet another year, which of course is the right decision. Uh, Bringing this event online virtually is kind of fulfilling uh, that need and, and, you know, sort of uh, plastering over that hole that you now have in your calendar because everybody wants to go to big events and we all want to go have a convention kind of experience. And taking this thing uh, virtual is really helping with that. It gives it gives the volunteers something to do. It gives the people who would normally go to convention events something to do. And I think it really opens us up to a wider audience of people who don't have to be in the Southern California area to do it. It expands the name of the library a little bit because they get remembered as the people who brought this cool content online. And it also lets people who aren't even on this coast experience what's going on with the library events that we do. Um, Alan and I have often gone to Star Wars Celebration or we went to San Diego Comic-Con, and we have tried to explain this kind of program to people as something that they can do on their own and that they can also reach out to their local Star Wars costuming groups in their area who are also a free asset and bring them in and replicate what we've done. And, you know, not that we want crazy competition, but everybody should get a chance to experience something like this. And we're able to show them that now through the sort of virtual presentation of this, where it's like, remember that thing that we were telling you about that we did? Just watch this, just see this, understand how it goes, understand how it works. And it's great. And I've, I've had people from other libraries uh, send me notes and said, the light bulb has gone on on my head. I finally get what you were talking about. This is cool. How can we make this happen in our community? And that's honestly, if, if something has to be good to come out of this and because we're forced to do it, that's a pretty amazing thing is, is that we can propagate the same kind of event with other libraries and other communities. Um, whereas, you know, maybe we had a little bit of a harder time explaining it to people and getting them on board to, to do it. Well, I'm going out west to see if I belong. I hear the people are friendly, the economy strong. Where they live and I live, they work and I'll work. They play and I'll play, they smile. Well, I just wanted to say thanks again to you all for all that you've done and continue to do with this event and for coming on the podcast here to share your stories. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And one last note, this year's event will be uh, May 29th and you'll be able to access that 
from the Rancho Cucamonga Public Library Facebook page. Thanks again to Alan, Adam, and Sean for sharing their movie-going memories and telling the story of Star Wars Day in Rancho Cucamonga. Libraries are spaces that give so much to the communities that surround them, and what this event means to that city and, and really much of Southern California is readily apparent the moment you set foot there. Be sure to tune into this year's virtual version on May 29th from 1 to 5 p.m. on Facebook and YouTube. In addition to awesome appearances from the likes of Ashley Eckstein, Ewok actor Kevin Thompson, and several Star Wars authors, you'll also see a video showcase of vintage items put together by the California Collectors Club. Thanks again to everyone that helped bring that together. Hopefully this time next year we'll all be back there in person to soak it all in. As for this podcast, be sure to head to the main site, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com for full show notes, images, and more. You can also keep up with the project on the Facebook page and join the affiliated group, and follow on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, you can reach me via email anytime at starwarsatthemovies at gmail.com. Another, as always, a special thanks to Michael Coate and his Star Wars theatrical chronologies for verifying engagement venues and dates. And one last, as always, thanks so much for listening, and remember, relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.